So I'm recording this on the morning of August 7th, about 12 hours after season two of the HBO series Winning Time debuted. And the show is based on my book, Showtime. So I'm going to say something uncool and a bit uncouth and definitely a whole lot of whiny. Please watch the show. Pretty please, with the cherry on top. Whether season three comes out is entirely based on the ratings of these early season two episodes. HBO, I've been told, has yet to make up its mind. And it is, after all, a business. So do your old pal Jeff a favor and tell your friends and your family members that there's a truly great program on HBO, that it's called Winning Time, and the guy who wrote it has two kids to put through college. And they eat a lot. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writer with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Adam McKay, the writer, director, producer, executive of The Big Short, Vice, Anchorman, Step Brothers, Don't Look Up, Ant-Man, Booksmart, Talladega Nights, on and on and on, and of course, Winning Time, the HBO series based on my book. This is episode number 323. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. Hi, Adam. First of all, thank you for joining me. I, I, I very much appreciate it. I feel like you were making fun of me for sitting in my closet, and I think that's unfair. No, not at all. All I said was, are you in your closet? I think you lay the judgment into that sentence, because <laughs> secretly, you don't feel great about being in your closet. I love closets. Closets are a nice place to be. Wait, so um, I've been thinking, thinking, thinking about this, having you on here. You and I share a definite, this is not a popular way to start any podcast, by the way, but a definite fear, anxiety, paranoia, terror, sense of dread <laughs> of the future of this planet. And I think it's very reasonable. And I, I wish more people shared that. And every now and then you'll text me sort of a, a meme or a video or something, and I, I'll, I'll post it. And meanwhile, you and I are in a way our shared sort of thing is that we have the show winning time about the Lakers based on my book um, that you graciously have made happen. And I was actually thinking about this because I struggle with this a lot as a writer. I'm working on a book on Tupac every day. I'm writing about Tupac. I'm interviewing Tupac's relatives. But hanging over me is this incredible sense of dread, despair, depression, anxiety. And it makes me feel like, what the fuck am I wasting my time for? And I wonder uh, how, <laughs> and I really mean that though. I really do. Like, and I wonder how do you get through that if you do get through that? Well, uh, to be honest, when you were saying incredible dread and concern, I thought you were going to talk about the Dallas Mavericks roster for the upcoming season, which <laughs> that's kept me up more than the collapse of the livable climate. But it, it's a great question. And I think it really the answer to it points to how much our sense of connection in America, as far as our duty as citizens to speak out, protest, has been utterly scrambled. Because if you were to ask someone in the 1950s, 60s or into the 70s, like, how do you do your job as a rock and roll disc jockey and at the same time go protest, you know, for your union or civil rights or whatever? They would be like, what are you talking about? Like, the, I think we've lost that sense that you can have a job, care about things like basketball or Tupac, and at the same time, be loud, forceful, and disruptive when it comes to dealing with our mealy, worthless government and the horrible big oil companies that are, without exaggeration, slowly, not even that slowly anymore, killing us all. So I think both can exist. And our Lakers show is a perfect example of how I've been trying to manage the mental health challenges of living during the rapid warming of the entire climate. And I, yeah, I just, I've had times where it hasn't gone well. I've had times where I've become quite anxious, where I couldn't sleep at night. And and part of that was 
the Mavericks never should have traded Dorian Finney-Smith. He was more of a key to that team than they realized. So that troubles me too. But the fact that the last 15 days, every single one of them has been the hottest day in 120,000 years. And the fact that the Mavericks don't have a defensive stopper, those two things are very troubling. So you've got to laugh. You've got to have joy. You've got to like, you know, hey, we're trying to defend life by fighting against big oil and the government officials they own and the, the lot of the news media they own through paying for advertisements. And what we're defending is joy and love of our children. And so I think the two kind of have to operate together, but I'm not going to lie to you. I've had bumpy times where the climate stuff has swamped the enjoyment. I mean, the last six or seven months were pretty brutal because all the warning signs were there. The data was not looking good and the news media was just silent. And our government was silent and it was driving me crazy. (laughs) And now that it's kind of hit, I'm like, all right, that phase is over. So I've, you know, even though I'm very troubled, I've relaxed a little bit because that's sort of trying to wildly wave your arms to warn people state is not a pleasant state to live in. So, yeah, it's very hard. But, man, remember, like the smallest things like you reposting something, bringing it up in conversation, giving money to, you know, these activist groups like Climate Defiance, Extinction Rebellion, uh Joining them, marching with them, calling your senator and getting mad, calling your congressperson and being like, what are you doing? Like that kind of stuff, it spreads. And once you get, they've done studies on it. All it takes is three and a half percent of a population to become active and it creates a tipping point. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. But yeah, you're right, Jeff. It's it's terrifying. And I think, you know, anyone who thinks that kid from Duke is going to plug the Mavericks defensive holes is pulling themselves. Let me ask you this serious question. What is more likely humanity somehow gets its shit together collectively and, you know, makes legit strides in sort of preventing future disasters, climate related or this season, Kyrie Irving leads the Dallas Mavericks to the NBA. <laughs> well, look, we got to be realistic about the climate. We don't have to become utterly hopeless and give up. But like, you know, we ignored this stuff for geez, for 60 years, but really ignored it for 40 years where we knew what was happening. Government punted, took oil money. So A lot of this heating, like what we're in right now, like the reason to stop fossil fuels is so this doesn't get worse. But we don't have the tech right now. I mean, maybe we can develop it. There are some promising leads to remove carbon from the atmosphere and it stays up there a long time. So we're already getting our butts kicked. Um, But man, if we just keep going, then you get into the realm of like extinction. Like if you start letting this become two and a half degrees Celsius warming, three degrees Celsius warming globally, then you're in the realm of like, oh, we may be headed towards extinction. Right now we're in the realm of probably a lot of people are going to have to move out of certain areas We're going to have to reallocate water. Certainly, we got to switch everything to non-carbon producing energy. I mean, there's a lot of like sucky things. So chance that humanity like solves this? Um, No, I would say better chance that Kyrie leads the Mavericks to a championship. Chance that humanity stops this from getting worse? In that case, better chance than Kyrie leading but i mean man chances that Kyrie leads that team to a championship like what half a percentage chance so i guess i go climate in every case over that no way the mavericks are going to a championship with that team 
Like your team is a disaster. It actually hurts me to watch. And I'm, I'm not even a mad fan, but I am such an anti Kyrie guy that having putting hopes in Kyrie Irving is truly one of the most ridiculous things of all time. Well, the only way you could win with him is you got to have like other gritty multi-tooled players around him like LeBron had with the Cavs. Then you can let him be the kind of freestyling, you know, brilliant scorer that he is. But like he can't play defense. He's horrible for team morale. You know, there's all these stories where he won't talk to teammates for like a month or two. So to compare him to uh, Mike Worth and Darren Woods, the CEOs of Chevron and Exxon, you know, you've got two CEOs who won't deal with future projections that their business model is going to collapse, won't deal with shareholders who are becoming more and more disturbed, have no vision and only want the quick payoff of quarterly earnings like Kyrie wants uh, a 32 point game Boy, that is the sweatiest comparison in the history of comparisons. <laughs> I love it. Someone should say to one of the CEOs uh, of the big oil companies, you guys are the Kyrie Irving of polluters. And they would say, is that, a good thing? Is that good? The is whole that crowd gasps. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, kind of interesting. Obviously you've had this wide ranging career with a ton of movies, TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think of you more than anything as a writer. I think if he was a writer from SNL, I think if you have a writer of, of different films, but I wonder, do you think of yourself as a writer? If you are, if one sort of begins as a writer, is he always a writer? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a writer. No question. Even when I used to perform when I was in Chicago, you know, I did the second city theater and we started the upright citizens brigade, which was a sketch and improv group for years. And so I was performing almost every night of the week. I was decent. Like I could, you know, I could handle myself on a stage and I knew how to get laughs and was kind of an okay actor, but always my strengths were the ideas I would come up with what I would write It was, you know, it was always ideas. And then really when I was at Saturday Night Live, that was like writing sort of, uh, it was, I don't know what you would call it. I I don't want to call it writing grad school because they actually have grad school for writing. But that was a case where I was writing 50 to 70 pages a week. I was sometimes writing for 15 straight hours, whether it was my own solo sketch, collaborating, writing with someone else on their sketch, the amount of pages and sketches and things that I wrote during that time. I really think that's what I cut my teeth on. I think I'm a good director. I think my directing skill comes from my writing where I think I have good instincts on how the writing should be played. You know, with something like Succession, I read that script, which I didn't write. But I knew right away how it should look, what the tone should be. But I still think that comes from writing. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm a writer first. I've said that at WGA events. I mean, this is my home guild, even though I love the DGA. Writers Guild is definitely my people in place. Right. So I'm fascinated because in journalism, I find and in books, I find that the hardest thing is to quote unquote, write funny. Whenever I've taught classes and students sort of talk about being funny writers, I always think, are you, I don't know. Like to me, if you're a funny writer, you're <laughs> at that age, especially you wouldn't say you're a funny writer. Like, no, you would not, you would not. <laughs> right. So like you're writing for SNL. I have no idea what it is to be a writer for SNL to write anything for SNL. Like how does an idea germinate How do you like think, okay, this is going to be funny on the page. And how do you take something that is just abstract and actually make it funny on the page? So, you know, the first thing is when people say, you know, you're funny or funny writing, there are like 30 different ways to be funny. Right. And it means something different to everyone. So, you know, it's funny. There's, there's this kind of crowd that like, 
that kind of hates comedies. And, you know, you'll see it with certain film critics where just the second a movie is making people laugh out loud, they don't like it. And I call them the wry smile crowd. And that's the crowd that likes things to be clever and likes things to be smart. But the second people start laughing out loud, it makes them uncomfortable or they feel like they're watching a porno. And so there's that crowd. That crowd is more likely to say, you know, writing funny. I'm going to write something funny or clever. Um, But yeah, then there's like larger slapstick, which I would say gets kind of close to like Anchorman and Step Brothers. Uh, which is like broad, broad comedy, which is actually really hard to do. There's satirical stuff. I always liked if I was doing something satirical, which I would kind of put oddly Talladega Nights a little bit more in that category. I still wanted it to be laugh out loud funny. I just love laughing. So there's there's a trillion ways to be funny. But one of the things I got out of Chicago was I was lucky enough to work with this um, improvisational teacher named Del Close, who sort of created scenic improv, long form improv, not the game stuff, uh, the quick kind of funny game stuff you see on TV, but almost like improvised plays. And he gave me the greatest uh, piece of wisdom when it comes to comedy, which is do not treat it like you're doing comedy. Treat it like you are going for something much bigger, have a much bigger point, and you will make mistakes. And the only thing you're going to do when you're doing comedy is you're not necessarily going to correct those mistakes. That's what's going to be funny. And you're going to follow through with it. But he would always say, if you're going to do a dumb character, make him brilliantly dumb. Uh, like Homer Simpson is brilliantly dumb. So his thing was always like push as high as you can go, push for brilliance, push for art. And if you miss, you're going to always have comedy. But if you just go for comedy and you miss, you've got nothing. So as ridiculous and as silly as some of the comedies, you know, I've done in my past are, We always did have a higher goal behind it. I mean, Anchorman was motivated by the empty pomposity of kind of what our news had become. Talladega Nights was like, we didn't tell anyone, but it was like, you know, we were like looking at Bush America and Step Brothers, as ridiculous as the movie is, the premise was that our consumer culture turns us into giant babies. So we always have that stuff kicking around uh, and it just gives you a lot of freedom if the movie or the sketch has a structure that can hold onto itself that if it's not funny for stretches, you're okay. Um, So I think that's one stumbling block a lot of people hit when I've taught uh, improvisation or writing before. It's like kind of the thing I start with is that your sketch, your movie, your book, your article that's supposed to be funny has to be able to stand up on its own when it's not funny. I just want to say one of the best paragraphs ever is from the Second City website. It says, you'll love this. Del Close passed away in 1999 at the age of 64 after holding a living week in the hospital the night before he died. According to a witness, his last words were, I'm tired of being the funniest person in the room. He famously bequeathed this skull to the Goodman Theater to play Yurik the Cranium in Hamlet's graveyard scene. That is all true. I spoke to him on the phone when he was in that hospital room, said goodbye, said thank you for... I mean, Dell is one of the all-time great characters. There's a pretty good documentary about him out there. I think it's... What's it called? I can't remember the name. Like, For Mad Men Only, I think it's called... And it's really good. It does a pretty good job of telling his life story. I mean, he was a cantankerous, grumpy, complicated guy. But holy crap, was he brilliant when it came to improvisation, group dynamics, comedy, mixing with 
satire, political points, causing trouble. Um, he had a very love-hate relationship with me and my crowd. He really kind of enjoyed what we were doing, but at the same time, like wanted us to be doing some different stuff. So it, it was it was funny, but man, I was lucky to get to work with him. You said broad comedy. You consider broad comedy extremely hard to do. Why is it? You were thinking one way you would think, oh, broad comedy, you know, making a bunch of people laugh would be much easier than sort of a more specific, hyper specific. Why do you consider it so difficult? I remember talking to Seth Rogen. I think they had done that preacher show. I mean, it might have been that. And it was the first thing Seth had done that wasn't, quote, comedy. And we were just chatting and he said, all right. Which is harder because I had done the big short and I think I just finished Vice and was starting to do stuff that was less, quote, comedy, had more dramatic undertones. He said, which is harder, comedy or more dramatic stuff? And I was like, oh, comedy by far. And Seth was just like, yes, it's way harder. And we both were laughing about how at the end of a day of filming comedy, your head hurts like you're so emotionally, mentally exhausted because comedy is so elaborate and tricky and you have to cover options and you have to always watch the reality of what you're playing. So when you go to like big, broad comedy, it gets even trickier because you're in a sort of like living cartoon. So you've created your own reality and you have to adhere to that reality yet you're trying to be you know you're doing stuff that's maybe going to elicit laughter i mean like to me a truly brilliant movie is peewee's big adventure the first one i mean that it's a masterpiece it creates its own reality and a lot of it was peewee I mean, he had, he had created that world before the movie, but the director did an incredible job of, of uh, fleshing it out. But yeah, it is a tricky, like my favorite movies are the ones that can, my favorite comedies are the ones that create their own reality, stay consistent with it, and then pull off masterful comedy. I would say Office Space is one of my all-time favorites. Airplane is a great example. Um, uh, the Mel Brooks movies, um, you know, you know in, uh, the I would argue the hardest movies there are to make. I really would. And I would say to any director is like, oh, they're comedy. They're low. It's like, all right. All right, buddy, go make a comedy. And I guarantee you a lot of them can't do it. Um, I mean, then there's ones like, Martin Scorsese made After Hours, which is a really good comedy. So there are some people that could do it. But yeah, it's it's by far the hardest thing there is to do. When you um, I, so I consider Don't Look Up. I I could not have loved that movie more. I loved every minute of Don't Look Up. I thought Don't Look Up was just brilliant and impactful. And it seems like a really interesting trick. To take something you are concerned with personally concerned with in a very real world, not funny way, which is the planet and the safety of the planet and make it make something digestible and funny and obviously a satire and not lose your fucking mind doing it. (laughs) No. Did you lose your mind doing it? Yes. Um, So that was the most challenging difficult, rewarding project I have ever worked on. I I wrote five different ideas of how to deal with climate, but because by that time I realized like, oh, we're like the the numbers, the science been speaking to scientists. Everything I was hearing was holy crap. This is about to thwack us right in the face. And I was hearing nothing from mainstream press, from our leaders, friends of mine would kind of roll their eyes at me when I would say it It was like, oh, we're in trouble. How do you do this? So I like wrote fully fleshed out ideas, like five, six page treatments. 
in some cases, outlines. Some of them were straight dramatic. Some were slightly funny. Some were more sci-fi, like all these ideas. And I kept coming back to, it It was my friend David Sirota had said uh, offhandedly a comment to me uh, about, uh, because he was sharing my frustration about no one cares about climate. And he said, it's like, we're in an action movie and the meteorites about to hit earth and no one cares. And right away, I just said, that's the idea. I was like, that's it. And it's a very, I mean, it's a funny idea. Like when he said it, but it's not that complicated. And I realized that's a trope. We all know because the trick is how do you get an audience to unify around whatever movie we're going to make? And then I realized it has to be comedy. Like you can't do this story. It, it'll just punch the life out of people. We've got a show. You can contend with this and still laugh. And then I realized uh, this is a big spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. Uh, so I'm going to say it. You get a second to fast forward. Then I realized you have to blow up the planet at the end because no one gets that climate warming can take down the whole planet. It's almost like it's not in the realm of our imagination that that can happen. And we've got to show that that can happen. So then COVID hit and we had to make the whole movie pre-vaccine during a pandemic. The only reason I'm able to laugh is because we pulled it off. No one in the film crew circle got COVID. Everyone like really did an amazing job of isolating, wearing masks. Like then we had to like test screen it and edit it. And it was the trickiest tone I've ever dealt with for exactly what I said about sort of heightened comedy, because it is kind of like a, a heightened comedy. Like it is like, farcical in a way but then it's real and then it gets really real so of all the tones of any movie i've ever made that was the single hardest tone and at one point we had to make a decision because there were really two versions of that movie you could cut one would have been the version for the kind of film world critics you know awards and we tried that version And I didn't like it. It wasn't playing. And I said to my editor, I go, you know, we've really got a choice right here. Do we make a populist movie or do we make a movie that kind of, you know, film elites are going to love because we had that version cut. By the way, I don't know if they would have loved it or not, but it was just more that tone. And I was like, the answer to me is clear. We got to make a world movie. We got to make something that's going to play in dozens of countries. So we slowly recut the whole movie, broadened it. um, And sure enough, for audiences, it started playing gangbusters. Uh, Sure enough, when it came out, very divisive, like horrible reviews, wonderful reviews, film people hating it. Um, And then when it went to the people, it was like nothing I've ever experienced. It played, you know, number one in 92 different countries. Like that doesn't happen with comedies. Like we were number one in like Nigeria, Pakistan, New Zealand, like these wildly diverse countries. And they all just got it. They had all been gaslit in major, major ways. And it turned out to be, and and the movie ended up, you know, there were marches in France, like hundreds of thousands of people went in the street, would just look up marches. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It's still a movie. Ultimately, it's not like it's single handedly woke, woke up the whole world and we've solved the climate crisis, but it was, it was really uh, incredible sort of affirming uh, experience, but like nothing I have ever uh, encountered with any other movie, TV show, anything. When you have a movie come out, like obviously you have a very established, great, excellent career and your film comes out, and you busted your ass on this freaking thing. 
How much do you care? I'm being serious. Like, I know it's easy to say, oh, not all. How much do you care about what critic, like when you read a critic and they're like, oh, this movie, blah, blah, blah. Does that, does that sting or do you not care? Ordinarily, I don't care at all. I mean, I've gotten plenty of bad reviews. Uh, the only time it hurts is in the case of Don't Look Up. What was painful about some of the reviews is, and I got in trouble online for saying this because people twisted it to mean that I was saying, if you don't like the movie, you don't believe in climate change. Like, no, but like some of the reviews you read and you could tell the critic had no clue about what's going on with where we're at. Like there was one, the Wall Street Journal is famous for denying climate. And I read that review and I was like, it actually like spooked me how clueless the dude was who wrote it. And so I had said something online, like, you know, implying like some of these reviews are a little frightening how much they don't get it. And then, of course, got piled on. He is saying if you don't like his movie, like, no, no idiot would say that. So in this case, it's a very strange thing to say, but some of the reviews were like a little scary. Like if you knew half of what was going on, you could still hate the movie. Like, I don't care about that, but you wouldn't say it like this if you knew what was going on. So it was a very strange reaction and it kind of spooked me in a way initially. But then when it went worldwide, it was like, oh, yeah. People understand what's going on. I forgot. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Casey Perlman, and I'm here with Anna Norris, my co-host on the hit KSCT radio show. We're so crazy. So with the Screen Actors on Strike, I landed us this pretty sweet gig doing an ad for my dad's podcast. What the fuck's a podcast? This thing old people watch. Well, what's the ad for? RoyalRetros.com. It's a throwback sports merchandise company that makes pretty sweet t-shirts, hats, and jerseys of old sports leagues. Do we get paid? In t-shirts. But he also says if we do a good job, we might advance to hats and jerseys. And then what? And then you wear a hat. Hard pass. I'm going back to my side hustle slinking rocks on the streets of La Jolla. Obviously, one of your great films is Vice, which is a sort of biographical satire about Dick Cheney. It's interesting because last year in an interview, you said something. I really felt this, actually. You wrote... Where you said, I fucked up vice. I regret not giving more blame to the Democrats who went along with the war in Iraq. I had a heart attack in post-production. I made mistakes, read the reviews and went, yes, that's fair. Can you watch one of your films and think, oh, perfect. I nailed that. That's great. Or do you see warts in every movie you make? No, I'm not that kind of guy who beats myself up. Uh, There are movies we have done that I would never say perfect. But there are movies I just say no regrets. I'm a bit of a lunatic in the edit room. I really go frame by frame. My editor is a lunatic. Uh, We very much enjoy working together. Uh, I'm a big believer that movies can completely change in the edit room that in a way you're kind of almost rewriting the movie in the edit room. So there are movies I'm totally happy with. Step Brothers, I have no regrets. Like that, I edited the crap out of that with my editor at that time, Brent White. Uh, every, you know, move, timing, thing. Like there are people that hate it. There are people that didn't like it. So I'm not going to say it's perfect, but like I am totally solid with that. Um, Talladega Nights, there's like, one little mistake in it that I was like, ah, shoot, why did I do that? But otherwise I'm good with it. Wait, what does that Uh, mean? I'm actually fascinated with this because every book I write, I'm like, fuck, that's a mistake. Like what, what would be a mistake? Like what's your mistake? All right. So here's the mistake. I'm going to tell you the mistake. So John C. Riley's character, Cal Naughton is at home and he calls uh, Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell and in Ricky Bobby's home, And he's asking him because he's stolen his wife and his home and his children. And he's asking him how the stereo works with the TV. And then John C. Riley, who I think improvised this part, talks about how spooky it is being in this big, empty house. And there's a couple really good jokes in there. And he hangs up. And I was in post. And I said, what if you heard a faint whisper saying, get out? (laughs) 
And we did it. We laughed. We put it in. And then later I watched it. I was like, oh, that's not the movie we were making. Like, it probably didn't bug anyone else. Um, and then Anchorman 2, there was like a 10-minute chunk I kept wanting to cut out of that movie in the late second act. But we kept having these preposterously great screenings. And the people around me were like, what are you talking about? It's funny. I'm like, I'm telling you, there's this section. They're not the best scenes. It's too long. And ultimately, they were like, people started telling me, you're crazy. Like, this is playing through the roof. And then the movie came out and I watched it. I was like, I was right. <laughs> So big short, I feel pretty damn solid with there's a couple little small things, but vice vice was the, that was a tricky movie just because Dick Cheney had hidden so much of his life. He was so secretive. The story is so large. Later, there was one critic who said this should have been a mini series. And I was like, you know what? They're right. Um, yeah, it should have been a mini series because there were so many stories. Now, don't get me wrong. There are runs in Vice that I think are as good as anything me and my team have ever done. Like, there are things I am so proud of in that movie. Uh, so I'm not saying, like, I messed, you know, I am saying I messed up a couple things with it, but I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm not saying I regret making it. I'm just, I always try and be honest about what I'm doing. So we don't look up. There's a section at the top where I never could quite get it to work. And then of course, as soon as I locked it, I knew how to fix it. So there's one little thing with don't look up, but otherwise I'm good with that movie. I wouldn't really change much. I mean, that was the movie we set out to make. So, yeah, it's a fine line, Jeff, because I know you're exacting and sharp. and But it's a fine line. You don't want to, like, beat the crap out of yourself. But I, I just try and be fair and, you know, sober-eyed about whatever I do. I just want to say one thing that I find really fascinating is, um, like, okay, I wrote a Barry Bonds biography. It was my second book. And I had a very tiny scene in the book where Bonds is taking batting practice with the Pirates and the Pirates manager, Jim Leland, is behind the cage and he's standing next to a player. And he says to the player, whatever, oh, look at this guy's swing. And I later found out that that player wasn't, couldn't have possibly been there at the time. And it was one mention on one page in a 400 page book. And I'll never forget that. I could be on my deathbed and I will. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy how that works though, isn't it? I'm sure like you could be on your deathbed and you're going to, you're going to think about that moment when you're thinking about your different films and be like, fuck. No, no, I won't. Oh. No, because I, I don't presume like, of course I'm going to mess up. Of course I'm going to have things that aren't exactly what I want. Most of the time it not being exactly what I wanted is a good thing. Like I try and embrace that. And like use that and use it for discovery. So no, no, I, I, I won't do that. Um, it's funny though, that I talked about, you know, how challenging it was to tell Dick Cheney's story. And then your example was Barry Bonds, who's kind <laughs> of the Dick Cheney of baseball. <laughs> could you do a Trump movie or is there just nothing funny? No, you could do one. Yeah. Um, I, I, the trick I, I always said if I did a Trump movie, it would be animated or claymation. I'm, I'm here for the claymation Trump movie. I mean, I think the real movie, I think the villain who has gotten off the hook, who maybe did as much damage as anyone because Trump's a train wreck and he's disgusting and he's a narcissist, a complete fool. But if you actually look tangibly at the damage to our system, oh. he and his people were kind of too dumb to like, you know, they couldn't have done the Iraq war like W. Bush and Cheney killed by some estimates a million people like. And then you look at what Trump did and it's disgusting, but the damage isn't as tangible. But the guy I really think that did so much damage is so disgusting so villainous is Bill Clinton. 
I think like a Bill Clinton miniseries or movie, uh, as the years have gone by, I've just more and more marveled at how much he destroyed the left wing in this country, how many African-Americans went to prison because of him, how he destroyed our manufacturing and factory jobs in this country with those horrible free trade deals he did with the Republican Congress. I mean, and I, you know, Jeffrey Epstein was like his best bro. I mean, the guy is just one of my regrets in life is years ago, like 25 years ago, I had a lunch with Bill Clinton and I'm still trying to wash my hands clean after it. I mean, I, I really think that would be an incredible miniseries movie because no, most people don't fully get how just wildly destructive that dude was. I actually think it's a first of all, I thought you were going to go Mitch McConnell, who might be my close second. I can't disagree with you. And I actually during the um, during the 2020 election, 2016 election, I kept saying to my wife, Hillary Clinton literally cannot make an appearance with her with her husband, who is a former president of the United States, because he fucking ruined everything. And. He, like he just ruined it. I think Democrats embracing Bill Clinton is one of the craziest things ever. I agree. Well, with you also, by the way, he's a credibly accused sexual predator. Correct. Like, like, and so is Donald Trump. Like I'm not excusing anyone, but like those sexual assault allegations against Clinton are highly credible and whatever are sort of, you know, gross culture wants to only deal with that. Like when Cuomo finally got taken down in New York, like the dude had covered up deaths in like, you know, retirement homes, like was covering up COVID killing people in retirement homes. But what took him down was that he was a handsy, gross horn dog, not that like elderly people died. So with Clinton, I would say, all the gross sexual predation uh, is is part of the story. But yeah, no, he's really history looking back a dark, dark force. I always thought a good play would be him and Dick Morris, like oh. hanging out at the Jefferson Hotel, chatting or hanging out at the White House, like one night sharing a bottle of wine or something like talk about the devil and one of his higher demons. Um, yeah. And Hillary Clinton, that whole energy. I mean, their daughter worked at McKinsey, like for people that don't know, McKinsey is one of the grossest companies on planet earth. It's literally known for sucking the souls of the people who work there. And um, yeah, they're, they have a real McKinsey vibe to them. The Clintons. This is going to be a weird transition. You, um, <laughs> you, you uh you helped rewrite the script for Ant Man. Yeah, I what was yet the word helped. Uh, well, what lot. is that? I am kind of interested because I don't know. Like, what is it? There's a script. They're like, hey, we could use some help here. What is it to come in on someone else's project and help with the writing? So that that was not uh, the the original writer Edgar Wright, and I forget who he wrote with. They had stepped away from the project. Okay. So they were no longer on it. There was some discussion of me directing it. That felt weird because I'm friends with Edgar. So, but Paul Rudd was starring in it, who was also a good friend. And he was asking me to direct it. I go, look, I'm not going to direct it, but I'll do the rewrite with you. So Rudd and I hold up uh, at the years back at the Chateau Marmont and we wrote for like six straight weeks. I grew up a, a comic book fan, a heavy, heavy comic book fan, fourth grade through like 11th grade. Everything was comic books or maybe 10th grade. Um, and uh, so I was in habit. And then I discovered Feige at Marvel gets it. He's a legitimate fan he enjoys the fun of it. So that was a blast. Um, that was just really fun. Um, and yeah, yeah, there's stuff from that movie that Paul and I wrote 
that's part of the Marvel universe now. And it's very cool to see it show up in other movies and know that, you know, I made a contribution to that. So yeah, it was a blast, but we, we didn't have to thread the needle with another writer who was in the room because they were off, they were moving on. And uh, Paul and I, Paul Rudd is a very good writer and we just, we just had so much fun. In fact, I got to do something else with him, but, um, yeah, that was kind of boyhood dream stuff. Is it hard to kind of come in when there is a thing that exists and now want to just throw it in the trash and write your own screenplay? Is that not a temptation sort of inclination? I mean, when that happens, they, you know, that's called a page one rewrite. You're essentially writing a whole new script. I see. Ideally, what you want is like in the case with the big short, Charles Randolph had written a script and I read it and I was like, okay, I, I would definitely do this differently, but there's good stuff in here. So that was great because there was good stuff from Charles Randolph. I rewrote it, put the stuff I wanted in. And I think Charles was shocked because after the draft was turned in, the movie made, I called Charles and, you know, I think there are some people that would have been like, hey, I'm taking credit. Your name's off. And I was like, Charles, fair is fair. There's a lot of your stuff in here. Let's share credit. So it was the funniest writing collaboration because we'd never really met. And but I really look at that as a truly, you know, 50 50 script but that like a lot of Charles in there, a lot of me in there. And we had a great time on the award circuit. He's a lovely guy. So yeah, every one of those cases is very different. I have done page one rewrites before. And to me, that's just like you're writing an original script. Do awards don't matter like to you at this point in your career. Do you care? Well, it's a tricky thing to answer because they matter to a lot of people. So I don't want to seem like a spoiled brat in saying no. So Yes, they matter because it means whatever you've done has resonated. Are they, here's the answer. Yes, they matter. Always a good thing. Are they a motivating factor? No. I want to answer real quick about winning time. So there was a book called Showtime and it became a TV show called Winning Time. And now it exists. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the book sucks. The author's a hack, but the the show is great. And, um, I've had this thing going on and I don't, this isn't my world. Like this, I've been thrown into the universe a little bit, but it's not my universe. And I keep thinking as we sit here in the, in the strike, how like, for example, Sean Patrick small, who plays Larry bird is awesome in season two. And he can't do a thing about it. You can't talk about it. You can't promote it. You can't retweet. You can't put on Instagram. Quincy Isaiah, who's amazing as magic. Same thing. None of these guys up and coming actors trying to scrap and claw their way into this business can't do shit about it. I'm very paranoid and nervous that this is really going to derail their efforts to survive this business. Am I, am I misguided in my concern? No, here's the thing. I think a lot of that stuff is overrated anyway, as far as tweeting, pushing that kind of stuff, you know, press junkets. I I mean, the show, I I couldn't be more proud of the second season. I mean, I love the first season, but I even think the second season is even better. And uh, I think people are hungry for it. I think there is a big vacuum. I think people are going to be like, holy crap, when it comes out. And I actually think it's cool in a way that the show is just going to stand alone. Like, just watch the show. Here it is. Because there is kind of a burnout from people. We're all marketed and advertised to death. We're BS 70 different times a day. It's constant sales pitches. I actually think it's cool that it's like, here's the show. And that's it. I I I, I think timing-wise, five years ago, I would have told you it's a major problem. But I think where our culture is at, like, just here's the show. So I don't know. I, that's an opinion. I'm not sure I'm right. You yeah. could be right, but uh, I I don't feel as concerned. I got a cameo this season, episode six. I play a reporter. I was super excited to do it. I'm not an actor. I got there at nine in the morning. They shot my scene, I would say, 97 times. 
Um, it involved clove cigarettes. It involved me in a wig that infected my head and I had to go to urgent care the next day because of the glue infection. I realized at that moment, I never want to be an actor. Never. It was so tiring and beat me down. Is the glory of Hollywood a real thing? <laughs> or is it a lot of hurry up and wait and your head is getting, uh, having to go to urgent care because the glue is infecting your head? It's, you have to go to urgent care because the glue is infecting your head. So here's the story I always tell. Yeah. So we're shooting Talladega Nights in North Carolina. And have these two buddies of mine, uh, they're brothers and cool guys, funny guys. One guy's a musician, other guy was a screenwriter. And they're like, please, can we come to set? Please, please, please. They're calling me. And I was like, I was like, we're in North Carolina. Like, we'll fly in. And I'm like, guys, you can definitely come. Uh, where I'm staying has a guest room. So you got a place to stay. I'd love to see you. I'm just going to tell you, film sets are very boring. Oh, will you say that you're in the job? You do it every day. We're oh my God, we're coming. So the day they're going to land, they're like, we're taking a car right to the set. They show up. It's actually an exciting scene. We're shooting when Ricky Bobby is blindfolded with his dad rams into a bunch of cars and then drives into a house like it's a stunt and they show up an hour into it. They come up and they say, we're bored. We're going to go. <laughs> I warned you. Yeah. So that's Hollywood. Well, listen, I just want to say, I mean, I've never said this to a guest on this podcast and this thing is six years old. You have changed my life. You actually have changed my life. And the show has changed my life. And it's been just a joy, like such a joy and a thrill. And this stuff doesn't happen to writers all that often. And uh, I appreciate you doing this podcast, but I really appreciate you actually, I don't know, taking a shot on this book and, and making such a beautiful I thing. Would, uh, someone thanks me in that way, because quite honestly, like the book's really, really, really good. Like, we didn't do it out of any niceness. Like we read the book. We're like, I, I, cause I'm a giant hoops fan. I really thought I knew a lot about that time. And, you know, Jeff, to your listeners, your special thing is that you're able to deep dive on these things that we think we know. And you tell stories that are just three, four layers down that are utterly compelling. And I couldn't believe I was reading a book about the Showtime Lakers with so much stuff I didn't know. By the way, I'm not even a Lakers fan. Completely wrapped me up in it. So all a long-winded way of saying thank you uh, uh, right back. Uh, you're an incredible writer. I now read everything you do. I read that once again, I grew up during the Bo Jackson era. What could you tell me about Bo Jackson? Turns out quite a bit. So you're an incredible writer. There's no one like you in, in the, or very few people like you in the non fiction uh, world. And uh, yeah, I, I'm literally excited for every book you do. My next book is actually I'm scrapping Tupac now and I'm doing the uh, the Dwight Powell story, his time with the Dallas Mavericks. So I think that's uh, something something pretty man. great. I, I mean, you're going to do it in three sections, three books like Robert Caro's exactly. series. Yeah, it's the Powell. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> well, Adam, thank you so much for doing this. Very much appreciated. Uh, absolute pleasure, Jeff. I, I hope to see you soon. Uh, maybe we do a watch party. That would be great. That'd be great. I want to thank today's guest, Adam McKay, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Adam on Instagram at Mr.GhostPanther and watch Winning Time on HBO Max. Seriously, watch it. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the amazing MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding. <laughs>